It's a haunting little song, isn't it? You listen to those lyrics. Uh, well, if we haven't met, uh, my name is Rankin. I'm a friend of uh, Jim's, and uh, you guys know this, but I just want to say what what a special uh, pastor you have. Um, Jim is such a dear, sweet, tender man. So, Jim, thanks for inviting me and my family back. We had our first Michigan football game ever yesterday. It was incredible. Uh, I've never seen anything like the big house and appreciate Bart and Lorraine's hospitality to us. Well, the U.S. Uh, Surgeon General Vivek Murthy has written a book. It's not often uh, the U.S. Surgeon General writes a book that becomes a bestseller, uh, but this one was. Some of you might have uh, looked at it. Uh, Murthy pointed out that while COVID has upturned, while COVID upturned our lives, it was his belief that there was a more pervasive, more deadly epidemic among us. Uh, that Murthy believes he, he called it quote uh, America's number one health problem, and he thinks it's behind the uh, soaring rates of mental health concerns, addictive behaviors. Uh, and writers from across the ideological spectrum, Ben Sass, uh, Arthur Brooks, have labeled, have joined Murthy in labeling this an epidemic. And you can probably guess what it is. They call it, quote, an epidemic of loneliness. That this is America's number one health concern, the epidemic of loneliness that so many of us feel. We're more connected technologically than people have ever been, and yet we are more isolated. We are surrounded by people but feel known by none of them. Too busy parents feel it, and more and more students feel it, like I don't have any real friends. Murthy says if, a, if someone you know uh, is diagnosed with a disease that you relate to them differently, and Murthy says that we should go into every conversation assuming there's a very real chance that the person in front of me is struggling with loneliness. There's a very real chance the person I'm talking to feels very lonely and like he or she doesn't have any real friends. And now viral essay, Marina Keegan writes, we don't have a word for the opposite of loneliness, but if we did, I could say that's what I want The Bible tells us that we were created to need people, that we can't experience life the way God intends for us without experiencing deep, intimate connection with other people. But sometimes, I'm sure you know that church can just make this longing more acute. See, we have this, uh, we have this feeble English word that's translated uh, fellowship, but that has become such a, a thinned-out, old-fashioned, churchy word. Uh, sometimes uh, what any inter introvert dreads, uh, small talk, uh, polite familiarity after the service, uh, may maybe a Bible study in a small group, but any conscientious participant knows that what most of us have experienced is nothing like the vulnerability in community that all of us crave. 
What does the Bible have to say about this new community in Christ that God envisions for us to find in our common life together? Well, enter Philemon. That's right, Philemon. The Apostle Paul's letter to Philemon stands apart. It's the runt of Paul's letters. Put that in for you, Jim. It's the runt of Paul's letters, only 25 verses. It's the only one of his letters addressed to an individual. If you're not familiar with Philemon, you're not alone. Since the early church, this little letter has been overlooked. Jerome, one of the early church fathers, mentions that most people of his day neglected it, quote, as having nothing that can edify us. Well, we'll see. Uh, It appears to lack any clear doctrinal teaching. There is no mention of the cross. There is no mention of the resurrection. It's almost never preached on. You know, people name their kids, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Not a lot of Philemons running around. But it does make you wonder, of all the personal letters, the hundreds of personal letters the Apostle Paul must have written, why is this the only one that we have? Why is this the only one that was preserved and included as a part of God's inspired Word? Years ago, James Burchill wrote a lengthy book on this one-page letter entitled Philemon's Problem. And that's what I want us to look at together this morning. What is Philemon's problem, and might it be ours? Well, to hear this letter, we need to appreciate that like any letter, There's a context behind it that occasions it. You have to use your imagination and read between the lines. For some of the details, we will have to do just that, use our imagination. So I beg your indulgence in advance. But reading the letter carefully and from other sources, we can piece together the main lines of the story clear enough. So who was Philemon? Well, we know he was from a small town in the Lycus Valley of Asia Minor called Colossae. We know he was wealthy, respected, and had a spacious home. And distasteful as it is to our sensibilities, like most other affluent households in the Roman Empire, he owned a number of slaves. On one of his business trips, perhaps to the bustling commercial center of Ephesus, he had met an itinerant preacher who had reasoned with passers-by in the, in the public square. He had heard about a Jewish rabbi who talked about the kingdom of God and claimed to be the son of God. But this rabbi was publicly executed and died. And three days later, Paul said. Now it's just like today when people hear that story, some thought though he was brilliant that Paul was out of his mind. But Philemon, this young businessman, He believed the message, and he became a follower of Jesus. He was baptized. When he returned home, he told his wife, Aphia, and his best friend, Archippus, about Jesus, and they too became Christians. And they soon discovered that they weren't the only followers in Colossae of what had been uh, come to be called the way. And Philemon said, we ought to worship together, encourage one another. We can use my home. And that's how it came to be that a church met in his living room, where a younger slave happened to overhear his master speak about a man named Paul. Now, it never occurred to Philemon to share the good news of God with his pagan slaves. I mean, after all, they were slaves. And you're probably aware that slavery was a brutal business in the Roman world. The power of the owner was absolute. 
A slave could not name his or her own children from whom they could be separated at a moment's notice. Slaves were socially dead. Aristotle called them, quote, ensouled property. Faced with such a life, who would not desire to run away? So to deter fugitives, the penalties imposed on runaway slaves were severe. There was branding on the face, shackling of the legs, and of course, the most severe sentence, a death so horrific, it was reserved only for the vilest of criminals and enemies of the state and runaway slaves. Crucifixion. Yet, even facing such a possibility, this young slave could no longer abide life in Philemon's home. So he lined his pockets with whatever he could, and he made for distant Rome, for the same reason that people run off to large cities today. He wanted to be anonymous, try and start over, carve for himself a new identity. Living on the streets and destitute, he heard that there was a group in Rome who actually fed the hungry and cared for the poor and not just their own. Who are they? He was told some group called the way. He said, I don't believe in that. It doesn't matter. They will help you. The young man was afraid, but he was desperate. So he sought them out and was told, now is the best time to be in Rome because a very special, special messenger from God is here, an apostle named Paul. He's in prison under house arrest, but anyone can visit and speak with him. The young man thinks to himself, Paul? The Paul? My master's Paul is here in prison? The boy recalls the kind things he's heard about Paul and thinks to himself, maybe this man can help me. So he goes and visits Paul in prison. And again, I beg your indulgence, but it might have gone something like this. Do you remember a man from Colossae named Philemon? Of course, I hear good reports about his faith and love. Well, I am one of Philemon's slaves. My name is Onesimus. My name means useful, but I'm not very. In fact, I've got a grave problem. I've committed a terrible crime. I've run away, and I owe my master a great debt I can never repay. I'm poor, and I'm hungry, and I have nowhere else to turn. Now, an old man... Paul looked at the young man in front of him, said, you do have a grave problem, far graver than you realize, for you owe a much greater debt to a far greater master than Philemon that you could never repay. And there, from his prison cell, Paul shares with Onesimus, this runaway pagan slave, a story about another master who, though he was in the form of God, took the form of a slave. He was deemed a threat, an enemy to the state, tried in a sham court, and suffered the slave's penalty. Onesimus, do you know what the penalty is for a runaway slave? And of course, every slave did. Onesimus, the punishment you deserved, he took on himself in your place. And if you will believe and turn to him as your new master, Jesus promises you a new life. And Onesimus, Onesimus is baptized. There's something about this young man. Of all the thousands of converts under his ministry, this is the only one whom Paul will come to call, quote, my very heart. My very heart. Paul's very fond of this young boy. Paul, can I just stay here with you in Rome and help you with your work? 
I would be so glad for that, but that would not be best for you, and it would not be best for Philemon. Philemon? What do you mean? Onesimus, you have to go home. Home? But I've broken the law. I'll be crucified. No, you don't understand, my son. This faith into which you were baptized, it doesn't just change your relationship with your heavenly master. It changes your relationship with your earthly one. In fact, it changes all of your relationships. Do you remember what I said to you when you were baptized? All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I thought those were just words. No, Onesimus. You are now clothed in Christ. That doesn't just change your relationship with God. It changes all of your relationships. You're part of a new community now, a new family. But you're still a Jew, and I'm still a Gentile. Yes, and you are still a runaway slave. But that no longer defines who you are. Just as being a Gentile no longer defines your relationship with me. You are my brother in Christ who happens to be a Gentile. In the same way, being a slave no longer defines your relationship with Philemon. You are his brother. I am my master's brother? Does he know that? I'm confident that he does. Though this is difficult for me to write, I will write a letter with my own hand that you, Onesimus, will hand deliver. And when you see how Philemon responds, then you will know, you will know that you are now part of a new family in Christ. Now, I want you to imagine that journey from Rome all the way back to Colossae, what had to be running through Onesimus' mind. Could this really be true? How could it be true? How will I be received? Will my master be angry with me? I cheated him, stole from him, I ran away. Will I be crucified now for handing myself over? And can you imagine approaching the door of his master's house? Knocking on the door. As another servant comes to the door, of course he would have recognized him. Onesimus? Onesimus, is that you? Tell the master I'm home. You'll never guess who's at the door. Philemon approaches. Onesimus? Master, I have a letter for you <laughs> from Paul. The apostle Paul? You met Paul? Yes, I've met Paul. And I too have become a follower of the Lord Jesus. And I have a letter for you from Paul. Paul, where have you been? It's all in the letter. And friends, do you realize that you are holding in your hand a copy of that very letter? For this is what Philemon read. If you'll read along with me, Paul's letter to Philemon. We'll read it in its entirety. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our dear brother, to Philemon our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, 
because I hear of your love and the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own free will. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave but more than a slave. As a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of you owing me your very self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me. For I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so to Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Do you think Philemon reread it? Was it a personal note? It clearly addresses Philemon, verse 1, to Philemon. But notice to whom else it's addressed, verse 2, and Aphia and Archippus and, quote, the church in your house. In other words, Philemon, I'd like you to read this letter for me out loud in your living room next Sunday to the whole church. What line do you think Philemon most stumbled over? Was it verse 16? He was parted from you that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but as more than a slave, as a beloved brother. Or do you think it was verse 17, the first imperative in the note? If you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Or was it this little dagger I'm sure you caught, verse 21? Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing you will do even more than I say. Oh, by the way, prepare a guest room for me. I'm coming to see you. Verse 19, to say nothing if you're owing me your very self. I'm not even going to mention that, that you owe me your, your life. I mean, what exactly is Paul asking Philemon to do? Receive him as you'd receive me. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, notice the wording, both in the flesh 
and in the Lord. It's not merely a spiritual designation. And you hear the pun, this letter is full of wordplay. Formerly, he was useless to you. And I told you that's what his name literally meant. But now he is of great service, useful to both of us. I would have preferred to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I'm sending him back my very heart. Now you see the problem, don't you? Everyone... Everyone in that household and surrounding knew Onesimus. They knew he'd run away, and they knew that he'd now returned. And everyone would be watching, what will Philemon do? I mean, he could insist on his rights, his legal rights under the law. But how could Philemon insist on following the law when he's holding the letter of a man in jail for running afoul of the law, for preaching the very Jesus that Philemon now worships in his own home. Onesimus is a runaway slave, and you see the problem. If I make this lawbreaker a freed man simply because he is now a follower of Jesus, every slave in my house will be seeking baptism and the subsequent liberation. And word will get out. Another servant will say tomorrow, I too follow Jesus. Word will get around town. Slaves in other Christian homes will follow. Where will it stop? This could ruin ruin, ruin us. What will happen to our economy? What will happen to our way of life? And of course, you're probably aware these were the very same arguments advanced in 19th century America and 18th century England. Just how seriously are we supposed to take this neither slave nor free in Christ's business? No longer as a slave, but as a brother, a beloved brother. Well, you remember in high school biology that the day came for you no longer to sit at your desk listening to the lecture. You're no longer just talking about anatomy or reading about it in a book, but the time had come for you to take it in your hands, touch it, and go to the laboratory. Well, that's what's happening to Philemon. Paul is sending Philemon to the laboratory of the gospel. Everything Paul wrote about in all of his other letters, the bigger, more famous, more impressive letters, they all come to a head in this little postcard. In fact, I believe you could make an argument that the center of Paul's theology comes to expression in how Philemon will navigate this relationship, this broken relationship with Onesimus. And of course, this is true for us as well. There comes a time where the gospel is no longer something we just read about in a book. But the litmus test of our faith will take a similar form. With people whom we might have every right to shut the door in their face or worse. How will you handle this broken relationship? What is Philemon going to do? I mean, he's just read the letter out loud in his living room. And now I hope you see what you are holding. Here's how James Burchell ends his lengthy book, Philemon's Problem, with this sentence. What might it mean to take our fellow church folks as our dear brothers and sisters in Christ? Those who despise us, or we might despise. Those whom we cheat, or those whom we have cheated. 
What might it mean to be goaded to find out what we owe them? And once we figure that out, we will know the postcard to Philemon was a divinely benevolent letter bomb. And you hear that, right? You heard it in my retelling, a divinely benevolent letter bomb. What is Paul assuming? What is Paul assuming in this letter for us? Well, the gospel doesn't just give us a new identity. It creates a new community, a new family, one that subverts the status quo and challenges cultural norms. See, it's easy for us on this side of uh, Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, Abraham Lincoln in the 21st century to read Philemon and think, what took them so long? I mean, what cultural blinders could they have possibly been wearing to read this letter and not trace out the clear implications? But don't you think it's just as possible for us today who think we may have progressed so much that we too have on our cultural blinders preventing us from seeing what's right in front of us and its very clear implications. They're just as strong cultural currents pulling us away today from hearing Philemon. One difference in our cultural context from the first century Mediterranean world, that was a communitarian, group-first culture, where the concerns of the group, the family, the tribe, trumped the needs and preferences of the individual. Whereas in the West, reading Philemon today, we live in an age of unprecedented individualism, what has been called a radical individualism. Now, there are lots of benefits to that, not, not the least the advance of individual rights. But a major blinder for us is that it is difficult for us to read this letter, to read the New Testament, if not impossible. It's difficult for us, if not impossible, for us to even fathom what this new community in Christ is supposed to look like among us today. We have taken something that has the germ of an important truth that our faith must be personal, just as it was for Philemon and Onesimus, to the point that each would ask to be baptized. But we leave that off, we leave off that by God's design, our faith was never intended to affect just our vertical relationship with God but our horizontal relationships with one another. You might know in another letter, Ephesians, Paul makes this very point. He points to the shape of Christ's cross as a guide to the shape of Christ's work. That it's not just a new identity as it was for Onesimus vertically, but it creates horizontally a new community, a new family. A brother, both in the flesh and in the Lord, and you're probably aware to say brother in the ancient Near East was not a euphemism for buddy the way we use it today. It meant family. In his book on community in the early church, Joseph Hellerman, the book is entitled When the Church, when the church Was a Family, Hellerman writes, You may be surprised to discover that the expression personal savior occurs nowhere in the Bible. Our radical overemphasis on a personal relationship with God is an American, not a biblical, theological construction. What we find in the Bible, rather, is a God who, sees, who seems at least concerned with community, me in relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ, as He is with the individual, my relationship with God. 
Look at verse 6 of our letter. Our translation says, And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like something I'd like to have. Full knowledge of, the, of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. I mean, if you had that, you would have the secret of being content in any circumstance. But notice what Paul ties it to. Our translation says, quote, the sharing of your faith. The word in Greek is koinonia. Through koinonia, through koinonia, you will have a full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now, we often translate that word, as I mentioned earlier, fellowship, but you can see from the context, it has to mean more than polite friendliness. Scholars tell us that it's a word that conveys a shared life, one life partnership. In another letter, Paul describes it, this is Philippians 1, standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel. That's biblical koinonia. Think of the fellowship of the ring. The people you go on adventures with, you go into battle next to, the people you entrust your life with in times of great danger and dire threat, the bonds of fellowship forged in wartime, a band of brothers and sisters. That's biblical koinonia as opposed to how we sometimes use that word. I don't know about the context you grew up in, but I often heard it used in terms of a fellowship hall. A room very different from this, a big ugly room where you go to eat store-bought cookies with weak coffee and styrofoam cups. But Paul knows, Paul knows this will be a challenge in every context. In another letter, he writes, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In fact, he makes this the very definition of what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And my question is, what has allowed us to slip into thinking that how we navigate our relationships with one another is somehow optional? As if uh, the challenge to Philemon were for Philemon. But this letter doesn't pertain to us today. Look what Paul says in verse 8. Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what's required. And I think if you're a close reader, you think that's an odd word for Paul, required. He can't mean required by the law. The law required punishment. Required by what? Well, required by the gospel. For Paul, the gospel has a relational trajectory to it. As if Paul were telling him, Philemon, this relationship is your opportunity to prove to yourself and the church that meets in your home that the gospel of grace, that's the word he starts the letter with and ends the letter with, that this grace did not come to you without effect, that it has power to reorder not only how you look at people, the people you used to look down on, your slaves, but also power to forgive any debt and heal any broken relationship like a runaway slave. Now, putting yourself in Philemon's shoes, 
you expect me to take him back after what he did? What it costs me? Couldn't Paul have said, do you want to talk about what's fair? You want to talk about what you deserve? You want to insist on your rights under the law? But he wronged me. He owes me. Exactly. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit as well. And this is where Philemon's problem might just become ours. Because our churches are full of people confessing Jesus, but riven with conflict and stained with broken relationships. As if this little letter were not our laboratory. Because I know this, you have an Onesimus in your life. Someone who's wronged you, betrayed you, owes you a great debt. It was Martin Luther King Jr. who said, A Christian can never say, I forgive you, but I won't have anything further to do with you. A few months before he died, making sure this was the last book he would write, Tim Keller wrote, Christians are never to give up on one another, never give up on a relationship, never write off another believer and refuse to speak with them or have nothing to do with them. We must never tire, he writes, of forgiving and repenting and seeking to repair relationships. He goes on. Matthew 5.23 tells us we should go to someone if we know they have something against us. Matthew 18 says we should approach someone if we know that we have something against them. In short, if any relationship has cooled off or has weakened in any way, it's always your move. Oh, that Tim Keller. It's always your move. It doesn't matter who started it. A Christian is responsible to begin the process, the process he writes, of reconciliation, regardless of how the distance or the alienation began. It's always your move. And this was hard. This was a business transaction. And it's hard for us in our homes, our workplaces, our churches. But what if Philemon was preserved for precisely this reason? And have you ever considered that this, this painful relationship might be an invitation from Jesus for you, the first time in your life, to practice real koinonia? to move your faith from theoretical knowledge into what Paul calls a full knowledge of every good thing that is in Christ for your sake. To make this as practical as I can, you can make this a new motto of your relationships with one another. First one to the cross wins. First one to the cross wins. Does how you handle this reflect your willingness to humble yourself and lose face. First one to the cross wins. Is how you're handling this conflict reflect first one to the cross wins. 
And if you're wondering what Philemon did, well, we happen to know the rest of the story. We know how he responded, not only because we have this letter, but because later Paul sends another letter, a more well-known letter to the church at Colossae, and tucked away in the back of the letter is this little line. This is Colossians 4, verse 9. I am sending back to you Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, and he'll tell you about all my activities. Do you know the legend has it that Onesimus would later become bishop of Colossae? And what does that tell you? It tells you never give up or write off anyone. And look at all the redemptive good that came through their working through this broken relationship. And Paul is asking a lot of Philemon, isn't he, to the church in your home. And in closing, we must ask, where does the power come from to manifest that we are a new family? On this whole day, in this whole uh, conversation today, and in asking you to consider where are you in this story, I've asked you to identify with Philemon, with the one offended. But maybe the way for us to read this story is to realize that we are Onesimus. We too were a fugitive on the run from our master, a runaway slave. It's a good definition of sin, running from God to get control of your own life. Like Onesimus, we too have debts we could never repay. And what did Onesimus need? He needed an advocate. You remember what Paul does for Onesimus, what he says to Philemon. Welcome him back. Receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account, and I will repay it, my very heart. So our advocate, Jesus, intercedes on our behalf. Father, let us welcome this runaway home. Receive him as you would receive me, for he or she is my very heart. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account, and I will repay it. And we know that on the cross, taking the form of a slave, Jesus did. But he did it to make us a new family. And when you know that you were Onesimus, then you know what Jesus said to his earliest followers. He says to you in your loneliness. I no longer call you servants. Instead, I have called you friends. And that's a good one-sentence definition of what it means to know Christ, that you now have friendship with the risen Jesus by His Spirit within you. And perhaps He is inviting you this morning to walk out of this room and make a phone call that you've long delayed. He's inviting you. He's empowering you to experience the power of the gospel that Paul shared with Philemon, and it gave him not just power to forgive, but to welcome Onesimus as his brother. And it gave Onesimus the power, a former runaway slave, to become a bishop. And it gives us the power, it gives us the power, the gospel does, to extend grace to one another. And that makes credible this claim of a new community. So, Redeemer Ann Arbor, thank you for welcoming me back. I hope you'll make this the refrain of your new life together. First one to the cross wins. And remember, it's always your move. It's always your move.
Well, that's the gospel and Paul's little postcard to Philemon. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord, thank you that you surprise us again and again and again in every letter, in every verse, that there is hidden treasure for us. And it's not just hidden treasure that you intend to use these hard words to soften our hearts, to take us into the laboratory of the gospel in our relationships with one another, to learn how to forgive as we have been forgiven and reconcile with one another as we have been reconciled to you in Christ. And Lord, I pray for this uh, community, this dear community in Ann Arbor, that they would practice and learn what it means to manifest biblical koinonia for the sake of Christ in this city.